Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Guernsey being a leading jurisdiction in the development of Green and Sustainable Finance. And as part of that, we have this podcast series where we speak to and learn from some of the leading figures in the global sustainable finance space. My name is Dr. Andy Sloan. I'm Deputy Chief Executive Strategy at Guernsey Finance, the promotional body for Guernsey's finance sector. And I established our steering group, Guernsey Green Finance. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Damien Payai-Tychus, Head of Impact Investing at Barclays. Welcome to the podcast, Damien. Um, just as a, a gentle introduction. Andy. Good afternoon, yeah, or morning, I should say, or whatever time of the day people are listening to this. Always ruin the chronology by dating it like that way. But uh, welcome to the interested listeners today, and maybe to break the ice for them, perhaps you could start with a bit of your personal motivations for working in the impact investing space and a little bit of the work of Barclays in this area. Absolutely. And a pleasure, pleasure to join you on the podcast today. So yeah, I started off my career. Uh, thank you. I, I started off my career uh, in consulting. So about 10 years spent doing good old strategy consulting. And I joined Barclays in 2010 after the financial crisis. I thought it was a really interesting time to get involved in an industry that was so fundamental to thinking about the influence it had on the world and very clearly both positive and negative opportunities there. Uh, I joined within the within the the wealth management business at the time and actually worked a, a lot on some of the organizational development type of issues that might have come out of the consulting world. But I actually started to get really interested right around that time also in what became the impact investing movement unto itself. And I think what's interesting to me is, again, thinking about the role that banks play, financial services play, and the role that capital plays in the world, and thinking about you know, the opportunities it has to help to facilitate and drive some of the changes we'd like to see in it. Um, and with that, started to build up a business case and really actually launched the impact investing effort for us in 2015, 2016, um, and have been at it since that point in time. Okay. So, to- uh, so a whole decade there, Damien, that's very interesting. And, and particularly the work of Barclays in this space, how, how is that covering off? How are you uh, doing, dealing with that day to day? Well, at, at Barclays, we're in an interesting position in the sense that as a private bank, we sit in between both the families, the individual investors and, and some of the intermediaries and actually the, the institutional investors, the asset managers. So a lot of what I spend time doing is focusing around one, having conversations with uh, the families or other investors in terms of helping them to understand the space and, and get involved. Secondly, with the investment team. So I don't run any capital myself, but actually working with all of our investment uh, teams across different asset classes from liquid to illiquid type investments to think about how do we bring impact into the investment process. And the last thing is helping for us to have a voice and play a part, but also learn from the industry in terms of getting engaged and involved across the number of initiatives from a governmental basis to the impact management project uh, to be able to really help bring in best practice, but also share some of our, some of our insights as we're, as we're on the journey as well. Okay, so I don't want to put words into your mouth, but very much a nexus between all the different um, stakeholders in there with, with, with respect to clients. Um, and, and in those conversations with clients, and it's something that we've uh, here at Guernsey Finance discussed both at, you know, with, with panels at Sustainable Finance Week back in June, but also on our webinar financing um, sustainability through private capital for New York Climate Week last week, was whether or not this is this whole agenda, the sustainability, the impact is part of mainstream financing. I mean, given your, you know, your nexus perspective, as it were, what's your views on that? 
it's interesting, Andy. I, I actually don't want it to be part of mainstream finance um, in the sense that I think at the moment there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of good intentions, and a lot of people starting to get involved, which is excellent. And, and actually, in some ways, I'm less worried about those who are starting to get involved, um, although there are obvious risks of greenwashing around how people are operating, and more about forgetting everyone else in the industry who isn't currently involved. And that is the mainstream. That is still the majority of finance. And in some ways, um, for me, it's not about the sustainable and green finance movement moving more to the mainstream. It's actually having the mainstream catch up with this new way that I think we are seeing to invest. You know, in our mind, impact investing and sustainable and green investment is actually much more the next iteration, the next stage of investment activity than it is something that needs to be mainstreamed into it, unto itself. Okay, so if it's, if it's not yet part of the mainstream, um, and this is a question I think particularly for family offices and owners of significant chunks of private capital. Um, what do you think the key barriers are for those people who aren't part of the mainstream joining, you know, the barriers to entry for family offices per se, you know, those that are, you know, perhaps to use your analogy, behind the curve uh, and how mm. to help them engage with sustainable finance? Well, two, two real things. One is just a simple process, you know, awareness and under, understanding precede or precursors to action. And I think uh, in the past, most people haven't even been aware of this as an option or opportunity. I think, you know, very clearly, given what we're seeing, that awareness has definitely been raised. But the level of understanding may not always be at the right stage or people may not feel comfortable about the level of understanding in order to start to take action. So one of the big things I think we spend time doing and I do is, again, having those conversations to help people understand and break apart a lot of the lingo and a lot of the terminology and a lot of what's actually going on in the space which is massively important as a, again, a precursor to action. That being said, there's a lot of people historically who've learned by doing, who've just gotten started in terms of, um, in terms of what, they're, what they're trying to achieve, especially on a family level. Families are tremendous in terms of the, the role that they have in terms of being able to deploy their capital with a lot more of the intentionality that we often like to see in the impact investing space. Uh, the, the second piece is obviously that question of opportunities. And I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable about are there enough opportunities or where are there opportunities or how do I find high quality investment opportunities? I think what we see is there is a litany of those. I mean, in fact, in some ways, the challenge may be more at this point being able to look beneath the labels and the marketing to understand what's actually going on in an investment process, what an investment manager is actually doing relative to what they're purporting to do. Um, to be the challenge. So I think going back to your question of families and family offices, you know, getting that level of understanding so that a family or your chief investment officer understands what it is that the possibilities are, where the landscape is and the terrain is really important to be able to move forward. And thereafter, it's being able to find those opportunities um, in terms of the funds that are out there, in terms of the direct investment opportunities, in terms of the portfolios that, that are being run. Okay, that's interesting. And again, I think it's probably important for listeners to obviously um, mention why we're focusing on family offices because we've had this discussion in the prep for the call about, and there's been you know, report after report that talks about the wall of private capital that could be a force for global good. Um, you mentioned it earlier on in the conversation about you know rooting capital to to good intentions. Um, do you see that you know in terms of you talked about the products and services out there, if people are um, interested in this space, uh, that there's a wall of capital that can do global good, um, and people are looking at maybe getting into that mainstream. You know, what is they're going to do? Have you got any practical advice 
um, for you know, people with significant private wealth looking to do good things? I mean, what would be the three key things you might suggest telling them? So I think the starting point again is, is education. So what we want people to do is be able to understand what the, what the terrain looks like. The, the second thing is being able to articulate for your family what matters to you and various ways of doing it. But when you start to take a, a deeper step, understanding what matters to you on a values basis, what matters to you in relation to your potentially your family business or the legacy that, that you've come from, but also the legacy that you want to leave and being able to connect up across generations, being able to articulate what matters to us as, as a family, and therefore, how does that influence the investment policy or the investment strategy that we're gonna thereafter direct our investment managers or CIO around? And the last thing, again, becomes that navigation piece. And, and I'd like to imagine you know, where, where we sit, at least, that ability to find um, across the spectrum of opportunities. I think a lot of people still see uh, this space as early stage direct investment into social enterprises. Uh, and, and yes, those are great opportunities for a lot of cases, but we actually see it in being able to find across uh, direct investments or larger private companies that are scaling or growth capital or public companies, being able to find those direct investments, sorry, excuse me, those those investments across the different asset classes and bring them into your portfolio, be it as a part of the core portfolio, you know, classic discretionary portfolio, or the satellite investments that you want to make. I think those are the things that in terms of getting going, you know, you really want to be thinking about doing because ultimately, I don't think it's necessarily about shifting immediately from where you are today, overnight to where the intention is or where we're aiming for, but it's actually about taking the first steps, you know, having a clear direction and being able to find the right opportunities in order to start moving in that direction. That's interesting. I, I, I want to come back to that point about the, that sort of going to the early stage direct investment, et cetera, and about you know, releasing capital directly in, in a moment, because it's, it's a, some really good points that you make there. But if I just come take a step back in terms of your conversations with families and advisors, do you find that most families are, I mean, that's quite a sophisticated conversation that you've explained there. Do you find that most families are, uh, geared up to be having that conversation and, 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 um, and advisors, present company accepted, obviously, uh, geared up to be able to offer the advice in this space? You know, what's needed? Well, I, I, probably not, if I think about it. And I think it's on both mm. sides. I think it's on both sides. I think it is partially the role of families to be able to articulate themselves a little bit better. But then again, you know, that's also part of the role of, of advisors is to be able to help them have those conversations and and clearly for many advisors you know who have been helping families or helping clients for a for a long time decades in some cases they are used to you know advising and talking to families about about what they know and how they've grown up and you know it's interesting a lot of the chief investment officers that i talk to with family offices come from an investment banking background tend to be of a certain age and a class and a, and a style and therefore this is something new that arguably is challenging to them personally. And I think they often, interestingly, are gatekeepers um, unintentionally uh, who have gates closed as opposed to thinking about, well, how do we engage with the family? I just want to go off and run money, you know, is, is their general view of the world as opposed to, I actually want to get involved in the slightly, as you said, difficult conversation around the differing generations and what they're interested in doing. You know, there's a really interesting uh, conversation I got invited into with, um, with an Asian family, a Southeast Asian family, that three generations in the room, um, what the principal, you know, 
man and woman in their 60s, uh, late 60s, um, and they actually had started up as part of the conglomerate, the family conglomerate, uh, one of the largest coal-fired power plants in the region. And he was understandably proud about this, uh, this coal-fired power plant because of the development it had brought to his country, to his region, to his town, and talking even about gender equity in terms of giving women opportunities to drive lorries and, you know, and sort of get employed. Now, it was interesting because the next generation, that middle generation, that sandwich generation, was really concerned about we have as part of our portfolio of assets a coal-fired power plant. And from a financial risk perspective, they were very clearly disconcerted about the idea of continuing to have or manage that asset from a financial basis. And interestingly, the youngest generation was absolute about it. They didn't want the family to own the asset today. They didn't want to inherit the asset. They didn't want to have anything to do with it, very much from a clear ethical perspective in terms of how they saw that world. And sort of having that conversation with everybody being able to have a voice at the table and then think about, well, what does this mean and how do we manage it as family is something that requires a bit of, of skill, but actually something that if you're an advisor or an investment manager, you need to be able to understand and appreciate um, in terms of being a trusted advisor to a client. That's, I mean, that's a really good example that you've given there. Um, and again, you know, people talk about it a lot. I've been seeing people talk, you know, platforms, but the, you've given us a real live example of the, the sort of the generational sort of conflict, it might be a pejorative way, but the, the tension between the different views of the generations. I've seen, you know, I've read many different reports, people talking about they're waiting for, you know, as wealth gets passed on to the next generation, that will be the great unlocking, as it were. But you're seeing it live now. How, how, how do you see that working out in practice? What's the, what's the pace of that transition? Well, there's two things. One, uh, I think people overestimate um, and underestimate that intergenerational wealth transfer in the sense that if you look at the IPPC report you know, a couple of years ago now, we, we've got 10 years to really address climate change. Therefore, waiting for the next generation to inherit the wealth and then reinvest it and then uh, address the climate issues that we have is not something we can sort of wait for, right? Now, on the positive side, um, we actually are seeing more and more of what is, you know, the older generation, the, the, the current wealth controllers and wealth holders being interested partially in what they are passing on in some ways because they are being engaged by the younger generation, but also because they're recognizing their own legacies. And they're thinking about, well, what is it that I want to be doing? How is it that I want to be seen? And what should the family be doing um, around it? So in that way, I'm, I probably have more conversations with older you know, wealth holders than I do with younger ones. A bit of a mix, you know, if I think about it, there's a lot of you know, uh, next gens who want to get more involved with the family wealth and, and are looking for ways to do it. But I have as many conversations with people that are saying, I want to do something. I'm not sure how to bring my family around or what the implications are, but, you know, let's, let's talk about this and actually why it matters to me. And that's actually as interesting and inspiring as talking to the, to the young people who are out there sort of making more noise about, you know, how they'd like to see the world. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting because we're talking about families and family offices, but I, I'd also actually bring in, you know, knowing, knowing Guernsey a little bit, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the fairly rich ecosystem of different uh, players there, right? So you've got captives and you've got, you know, trust companies. And I think, you know, the interesting thing also is the similar pattern that we've just been talking about plays out for them. You know, if I think about, you know, as a captive, you know, thinking about how are you investing on behalf of the organization that you're supporting, right? There is going to be, you know, many 
many organizations are saying we are committed to the SDGs or we are going to make these changes. And ultimately, at some point, they're going to look at the investment portfolio that they have in a, in a captive sense and say, what are you doing? How are you investing on our behalf, partially for the financial benefit of using ESG, but also for the impact, for the outcomes you're generating, and what else can or should we be doing with that capital? In the same way that you know, trust companies, again, working with on behalf of you know, the families should be more aware and cognizant. And, and even to some extent, you know, I'd argue, think about thinking differently about fiduciary duty than they have in the past in terms of the role that they should be playing with, with families and the expectations that families are going to have of them. So Damien, you're, <laughs> you're doing my job for me. This is very, it's always, it's always pleasant. Um, but you're absolutely right in, in terms of the ecosystem here in Guernsey. Uh, you talk about the insurance guys in the, in the capture of the ILS space. Ironically, we are just about to launch a green sustainable framework for, for ILS and captive insurance. Um, and then when you're talking about in the, in the, and, and GEAR, our International Insurance Association, is actually a signatory to the global um, sustainable insurance principles. Um, and on the, on the private wealth side, we, uh, our, private, our, our forum last year in London, uh, I think it was physically the last one we held, uh, um, a, a last event we held physically, uh, was about uh, the role of sustainable finance and in the trust in the fiduciary world we are indeed looking at uh, the role of fiduciary duty and it's a conversation we're having both stakeholders and regulators and we actually have a private wealth um, strategy that we'll be publishing shortly and central to that will be the incorporation of ESG and other sustainability factors into our overall fiduciary duties and how that we can make you know provide clarification uh, amongst that because we've seen uh, particularly over the, over the course of the summer in the private wealth and fiduciary space people um, being very very um, you know um, keen and excited uh, to be part of the sustainability agenda. So um, enough and about, and <laughs> enough about me. No, no, no. Actually, exactly. it's really interesting that you bring that up, and, and I guess I'm I'm curious on one level. For the for that that view of fiduciary duty, you know, what is it that you are seeing, uh, or what is it that you're hearing from from local companies around that uncertainty? Because it's something I think we've seen. You know, if I think about sort of where where we sit and you know global perspective of seeing what's going on around not just UK but also more broadly, you know that conversation has happened, is happening still, ongoing, etc. I'm curious from a local perspective, you know, what are some of the the concerns? Because you know, being able to share some of the experience of, of what's happened elsewhere may be helpful. I think, I not to put the words into other people's mouths, but from, from the, you know, the fiduciary duty perspective where, um, you know, but basically it's, the, it's a financial fiduciary duty overall at the end of the day, understanding that ESG and sustainability factors can be incorporated into an investment uh, review process and lead to a better pecuniary outcome is something that people are looking for reassurance on. I think what we, I think if you went back a few, if you went back a few years, people would have sort of been very, very uh, cold about the, the the whole notion. But coming through what with you know with Al Gore's and the United Nations 21st Century Fiduciary Duty mm. um, Initiative, people are much more broadly understanding and better educated about about these issues. I think when you talk about the, the concern and, the, and, the, and uh, the, concern, um, the worry is in a, um, in a legislative or a, you know, a legalistic sense to be, to be clear that people are still at the end of the day 
be you know servicing their clients from what is a legal duty and it's the clear you know, so the, the legal duty does not change it's understanding that fulfilling that legal duty um the, the ability to bring in and think about other factors is helping fulfill that legal duty in a, in a, in a better perspective or in a better manner. Um, but the, the notion that we have here is to, so you know, if you look at where the UK and, and others have, have gone, is to be able to, um, you know, let's, to jump across to the, to the pensions context, for example, to, to make it clear to pension providers that in their statement of investment principles for a pension scheme, for instance, uh, recognizing the ESG factors are a consideration and the amount of material pecuniary impact um, is you know is quite clearly expected um, and, and understood. So and it's and it's transposing that sort of thought process into the private wealth servicing world without overstepping the mark and creating boundaries on the fiduciary duty like you've seen um, you know, in the states where you've had it you know, going back and forth between um, the Obama administration's view and the Trump administration's view. I think both sides have merits. Um, I think I think the, but the consensus is falling around. Um, that you know, sustainability in its broadest sense is something that needs to be taken into account. I mean, after all, at the end of the day, if we go to jump back to climate change, which is going to green finance, climate change risks themselves and the impact of, of climate change on a portfolio is something that they, you know, to go back to TCFD, um, you know, it was the, thing, the original thinking behind TCFD. It was a, an approach to get banks and insurers to take climate change risks into account. Um, ultimately, uh, for the fiduciary duty to their shareholders to ensure that um, these risks have been properly accounted for, properly priced, uh, and the appropriate action taken. Again, it's a podcast <laughs> speaking to you rather than speaking to Andy Sloan. But there you go. Hopefully, that does that is that consistent with your view? It, it is. I, I think what's you know, and, and, and it's interesting also, obviously, in the conversations I've had more more generally with regulators or even with our own compliance teams around sort of earlier stage. Of, of this journey in terms of what role should we be playing and, and what responsibilities do we have I, I think you're absolutely right I think the preponderance of evidence is very clearly that you know ESG factors are, are clearly material um, to investment performance and therefore they should be taken into account in, in some ways you know the argument now or shortly will end up being are you not uh, undertaking your fiduciary duty if you are not in you know in, in essence are you delinquent if you aren't at, at least including the ESG factors, let alone the underlying, to your point, the underlying view around sort of the, the role that you're acting in the best interest or on behalf of your clients or your, you know, your, your investors or your clients, in which takes, you know, taking these things into account, you know, arguably is in their best interest, uh, especially when they've expressed it. And I think that's the, the other interesting thing. I think that's the difference in some ways with private wealth is that the individuals that we are serving have the ability to express what it is they want a lot more clearly. Now, even in the even the captive market or even, well, obviously in a trust market, you have an indication of that. But at least as a starting point, I think the, the to your point, and absolutely that 20, you know, fiduciary duty in the 21st century uh, report, you know, however lengthy it is, um, is an excellent primer on the topic for many people. Um, I think the the idea that we are moving forward, that's why I said at the beginning, this is the next stage of investing. This is not, you know, we, we, we started off, if I go back to that example, we started off with return, right? If, if you really think about it, it was only 1952 that we started to incorporate risk into investment thinking. 
risk mm. and return or risk adjusted return. And it's yes. taken decades and there are still people doing things differently. And I'm not by, by any means, by the way, suggesting impact is a third dimension. I, I don't necessarily believe that. But bringing impact considerations into investment decision making for both the benefit of the financial outcomes as well as the outcomes of the investors as well as the wider societal outcomes is absolutely where that next thing is. Um, and I think for the for the organizations that are committed to doing that, that for me is where the interesting next stage is in terms of thinking about what role should we be playing and how do we better discharge those fiduciary duties on behalf of our clients. Those are very good points, David. And actually, it comes out to that trust point. You know, it is it's informed our approach where we will be looking at providing and and, and um, publishing sort of uh, template trust documentation that will be able to guide and assist fiduciaries in this space very much to you know, provide guidance and clarity. But to come back to, to your point there about return and risk adjusted return, you might have heard me sort of involuntary agreeing with you sort of out loud. Um, Guy Hans, he was uh, speaking at Climate Week with us last week, obviously a titan of the PE the world, was basically sort of, we were, the conversation was going around the, the time horizon for these, these types of investments, being of a, you know, a through the cycle type approach. And he was sort of suggesting we were talking about this, that maybe the time horizon was, could be greater. Um, and he sort of mentioned that he'd rather have uh, you know, 8% eight, uh, 8 returns for 15, 25 years rather than 15% for eight years or five years. You know, it, you know, it may be large numbers to make a point, but is that um, sort of balance between return and an investment horizon something that lends itself particularly to your clients? Or is that, is that a, a next sort of conversation, uh, the, the next chapter of the story? Well, it, it, it depends to, on two things. One is the, the client uh, and, and their investment objectives and, and therefore also what's, what's available in the market and, and sort of where the market is at the moment. I, again, thinking about it for a lot of our clients, you know, we are talking about intergenerational wealth. This is not a, a time horizon that we're, we're talking about what is happening in the next week or two weeks or, or month or year. You know, if you are starting to plan and think, you know, years or decades out, then very clearly your what you are willing or how you are thinking about what you're going to invest into will change uh, by nature. And I do think that in many respects, both ESG considerations, but also the, the companies that are solving big societal problems have the best opportunity to grow over that long term. There are some short-term opportunities as well, so let me come back to those, or some interesting things that I see people doing. But the way that we see it in terms of where, uh, un unfortunately, uh, so if we take where we are today in terms of, I think, return expectations being readjusted for many, uh, for many investors about what sort of what is the next series of years look like in terms of, you know, a, a lot of headwinds for traditional or historical, you know, capital asset pricing model returns, you know, looking ahead, we will be challenged. At, at the same time, when you look at where the biggest areas of growth are, they actually also tend to be, unfortunately, around where the biggest areas of issue we have. So climate change um, being, again, going back to it, one of the biggest areas of challenge, or when we talk about aging populations or and healthcare associated with that, or demographic shifts, you see where uh, a lot of these long-term growth trends, and if you're investing over that long-term time horizon, you know you should be thinking about those trends. Um, as to how you incorporate them into your portfolio. It doesn't automatically mean you have to have a thematic portfolio, but I do think bringing those into the investment decision-making and thinking about who are the companies that are both well-run, 
let's look at the ESG characteristics, therefore are going to be more sustainable, more effective, uh, more likely to attract talent, you know, less likely to have tail risk, et cetera, you know, generate better free cash flow, as well as the companies who are in the markets that are going to be growing because they're solving issues that we fundamentally know we need to solve. Those two things together make that type of uh, return more likely and a lot more attractive for, uh, for investors. Now, uh, if I go back just very briefly, I do see uh, I do see some in investors starting to bring in at least ESG considerations over a much shorter time horizon. Even, you know, I've seen some people talk about short selling, using ESG as a way to both influence companies and also find where that mismatch is between, you know, uh, investor expectations or market expectations and company fundamentals. So I do see that there are some some people doing a few things that are very, very um, interesting. Um, I haven't seen a, a lot of those, but I think really what we're talking about here is if you are thinking about investing over a long-term time horizon, how best can I do that? Where are the best opportunities to both place capital for the returns that I want, but also back to the outcomes I'd like to see in the world? You know, this is the way to go about doing it. Okay. And, that, and I, I said I'd come back to this. Um, but, you know, people listening to the podcast today, you talked about uh, the, the assets in the portfolio just just now and, and earlier on you were talking about uh, impact was originally people thought about early stage investing in social funds and then looking at direct investments and then uh, public markets um, so it's been a really interesting conversation today between the two of us and if say somebody's listening and they you know, basically everybody listening here says look do you know what that's really great stuff listen to Damien I want to get in, I want to get started so everybody that was listening to the podcast comes away gives you a call and says look I want to get started with sustainable impact investing are there enough products and services ready and waiting for those investments? What's the, what's the pipeline look like? Uh, so I, I'd be thrilled if everybody called us up um, and, and asked if, if they uh, needed help. Um, I think the, uh, and, and realistically, I don't think anybody would be able to transition a portfolio overnight, as I said before, from, from where they are today to where they would be in terms of the, the capital that, or the investment opportunities that are available. That being said, I think there are more than enough or sort of the level of demand that we see today and actually growing demand. So your question of pipeline, um, I think I saw Morningstar uh, just on a liquid fund basis talked about another couple of hundred funds launched um, in the sustainable space in the first half of the year. Wow. Uh, now granted, and unfortunately, I will say, I think a number of those funds are relabeled existing mm. funds or parallel funds to the existing funds that they the a fund manager is running which i think is an antithesis to what we're trying to do here back to my point of mainstreaming mm. um you know if you believe in, in at least esg you shouldn't be running an esg strategy alongside your traditional strategy you should just be integrating esg into your traditional strategy which is what we've done right you know yeah. into our core discretionary portfolios we don't make a big deal out of it actually i think it's quite interesting that we haven't when a lot of people other people have um we, we've done it because it makes sense to help our investment teams make better investment decisions. Um, sorry. So if, if I go back to your question, I do think that uh, people, uh, there are opportunities across asset classes um, for people to get involved. I do think that there are steps that you can take in terms of, uh, it, you know, moving part of your discretionary portfolio or rethinking, you know, what it is that you want to be active around or finding direct investment opportunities. You know, we see a lot of interesting things, you know, coming from, you know, the, the, from our corporate, from our investment bank, you know, that, that we have direct access to, which is really interesting to see some of the companies, you know, benefit, I guess, of where we sit. Um, the benefit of being able to see the companies we bank, who are also sometimes raising capital and being able to show some really fascinating companies to our clients. 
Um, so I do think there are steps that individual investors can take depending upon what it is that you achieve. Now, the first thing is obviously, as I said before, uh, articulating what it is that you want or having a clear direction because otherwise, you know, it's, it's kind of hard or worse still, you go to your current investment manager and say, I want to do this. And rather than have the conversation about what do you want to achieve, they just pull off the one sustainable product that they have um, out of the back and, and go, ta-da, here's your strategy. Um, and I, I worry a little bit about that. Mm. So, I mean, that's, in terms of the, the mainstreaming comment, I think you actually make a good point. The mainstream is almost a, it could be a shorthand for greenwashing in terms of, you know, you wouldn't want people mainstreaming just the sheer, uh, sheer crack of it, as it were. And in terms of that, you know, that greenwashing point, that mainstreaming point, and how do you guard against it? We've heard, for me, there's an awful lot of propaganda out there, and you've just alluded to some of it now yourself. Um, but for those, how do we, you know, we, we sort of know Iranians, I'd like to think, but to how do we help people to break down what is good sustainable, you know, sustainable um, financing or impact investing? Um, I often hear that measurement is the solution. Do you agree that that's very, you know, good measurement is the be all and end all of this? I don't think it is for investors. Um, I think it's critical to the industry in order on a longer term time horizon to avoid or to overcome the risk or, or the, of greenwashing or the criticism of greenwashing. But I think for many investors, and certainly the ones that I talk to, they do want to know what their portfolio is doing, and, and they love to be able to see some numbers around it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to invest more if there's better measurement. I, I think it still fundamentally comes down to the better, you know, the, the better investment thesis and the the ability of a of a investment manager to to execute that than necessarily the measurement that co that comes around uh, that comes around that. You know, the, the good news is obviously we're getting more data from companies, as you mentioned, TCFE and, and others are trying to produce more, more data for people to make better judgments around, also to be able to report around. And, and for me, I think one of the things that we look at when we talk to investment managers, because now it's, it, you know, quite honestly, it's easy to produce an impact report given the data providers who, are, who have almost off the shelf measures and metrics that they can, uh, that you put your portfolio into, it'll spit back out a, a measurement, and even more so, it'll tell you how many uh, trees or, or how many cars or, or, or whatever else it is. So there's calculations that you can provide. And, and that's useful, and I think that's helpful to put in, in context for people because the tons of carbon emissions equivalent per million of revenue, I think most people would struggle to actually understand what that meant. That being said, I think from an investment management and investment industry basis, what makes more of a difference is not what you are showing me. And this is a really important thing, I think, for us. You know, to me, those, those reports oftentimes feel like vanity metrics, like look at, look at what we've done. But from an investment management perspective, what we're interested in is not what you're doing, you know, that, what the output of a portfolio is, but actually how does that influence your investment process? Sort of, so what? What does that tell you about the investment decisions you've made? And now more importantly, now what are you going to do about it in the next cycle you know, of your investments or how you're continuing to monitor and manage the investments? Those are the things that if you want to get into the detail with an investment manager and challenge to know how effective they are, it's those type of questions that you want to ask. It's, it's being able to help uh, ask them and, and have them explain to you in a clear, credible and convincing way this is what and why we use ESG. This is how it's helped to inform an investment decision. This is what we do and what we don't do, you know, and therefore, you know, what are the outcomes that sit around that? And here's how I can show you that. But even more so, here's how we're taking that into account in terms of future investment we do on your behalf. So it's not always the first order questions, you know, 
uh, that matter. It's actually the, the ability of the investment managers to explain the second order of questions and the third order of questions that I think are, are, are interesting. And quite honestly, you don't need to be a specialist. You just need to be curious. You just need to be challenging and ask those questions. And I think ultimately, uh, you have a right to do so in, in terms of the, as an investor who's, you know, who's going to be giving somebody their capital to, uh, to invest on, on your behalf. Before I, before I wrap and, and close this out, is there anything that you'd like to mention that possibly we haven't covered? Is there a, is there a final thought uh, from yourself and Barclays and, you know, um, that you would like to, to leave us with? Absolutely. I think the, the starting point of all of this is asking, right? It is your capital. You should be able to ask. In fact, you should be able to demand it of the investment manager or the private bank that you're working for. And ask us too, right? And if we aren't delivering, um, then go find somebody else. Or alternatively, somebody else isn't delivering, please come talk to us. But I think that the starting point for all of this movement and the ability for us to move more capital into the solutions and into the outcomes that we want to and you know, deliver the investment returns that we're looking for is really by starting and asking and demanding it of the people that you have working for you. And, and that would be the one thing I would say as a final thought for anybody who wants to get going and wants to move this forward. Thank you very much, Damien. That was a really interesting point. And in the, you know, in the spirit of Ask, I'm really glad to say that we ask you to come on today because it's been a fascinating uh, conversation with you today. I've learned so much. Um, the thought of first and second order questions will stay with me for a long time. And, the, and your comments about the fact that you know, this, is, this isn't about mainstreaming finance, it's about the mainstream coming to, to impact finance rather than impact going to, to the mainstream. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. I think that most people will be going out there and you know, calling their advisors, uh, having had a listen to us uh, today, um, and we're moving more into this space. So thank you once again, Damien. Uh, great insights. Um, we have a packed catalogue of interviews with our listeners and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. You can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com and interact with us on Twitter at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. So it just remains for me to say, we have links to Damien and Barclays social media in our show notes. So do check these out to hear more from Damien and to say we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcasts. Thank you very much. <laughs>